A book I read recently is called The Coaching Habit, and I've read it several times. It isn't a complex book, which is good because sometimes you want a book intended to help practitioners. So it's a simple book, it's a powerful book, and it gives you an understanding of how you can use coaching questions to get more from yourself and your team. So for that reason, it's gone down a storm with companies who want their managers to adopt a coaching style of leadership. But more importantly, from the perspective of this podcast, more importantly is the story of the person behind the book and the person behind the training business box of crayons. So today's guest is Michael Bungay-Stanier, who started Box of Crayons, his training business, completely on his own in Ontario in 2002. And in the intervening 18 years, Michael has built it to an international success story with clients like Citibank, HBO, Nestle, Yahoo, American Express, and many others. And he has built a team of facilitators who run his programs worldwide on his behalf. So how has he managed this? How has he achieved this? That's what today is all about. This is episode 92 of the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of the Training Business Podcast. My name is Mark, and I'm the lucky, privileged host of the show because it's a privilege to host the show every single Thursday and to help people out there in the training business community, people who, just like I or you, run a training business and do what we do because we love doing what we do. So for this reason, this is the show for freelance trainers, for training business owners, training consultants, just like you and I, all around the world. And we have listeners all around the world. And the goal is to help you to start to grow and to scale a profitable training business. So the kinds of episodes which we put together to achieve this, well, they're varied. Sometimes it's just me on the mic, and sometimes we have guests on the show. And for that reason, this is what we're doing this week, because I love sharing success stories, particularly those of people who have started training businesses from scratch and built them to an international success story. So casting my mind back, and I have a list here, in episode 35, we had CEO Joe Ellen Grip, who is co-founder of London's Impact Factory, a presentation skills training business on the show. And in episode 49, we had CEO Chris Crosby, who together with his business partner began the internationally successful TMA Group. In episode 56, we had Nick Smallman, who is founder of Working Voices. They deliver training all around the world, in places like Hong Kong, London, the States. And in episode 59, we had CEO Philippe Riveron, who began the French training giant Learning Tribes, and he started that business with his wife. A huge success story, of course. So there are many stories of companies like this, or like those, out there. So I love bringing you success stories like these whenever I can. So one of these is long overdue. For that reason... It's great to chat with Michael Bungay-Stanier this week and to share his training business journey with you. 
Michael, hi. Thanks for joining me this evening. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I think this is going to be a really good, interesting, juicy conversation. And I'm happy to kind of open up the kimono. I reckon so, because we're we're both in the learning and development space. We're running training businesses. So we're really speaking to people who are our peers today, people who'd love to know how you began, the heights you've achieved, and of course, how you reach those heights. So let's start at the beginning. And the depths I've And the depths, of course. Let's, yes. Let's, let's, let's paint the whole picture. <laughs> let's paint the whole picture. We'll take out the full box of crayons. <laughs> so you began in July 2002 with this brand called Box of Crayons, which is, of course, a company based in Toronto. For those unfamiliar with the brand, what does Box of Crayons do and whom do you serve? Yeah, so the way we now talk about it, and it's gone through you know numerous iterations over the years, but we now say we are a learning, we're a training company, and we help organizations shift from advice-driven to curiosity-led. So we uh, focus primarily on kind of Fortune 100-ish type companies, big companies typically, and our our when most known for coaching programs, helping managers and leaders make coaching and being more coach-like in everyday way of working and everyday way of leading. Okay, so that's um, pretty much focused on on coaching. So you're a training company that delivers coaching programs. That's right. Okay. And you have 32 employees, at least that's the number I found on LinkedIn. Um, but you've got it's 25... Right. Sorry? We've got, we, uh, so we've got... Um, somewhere between 15 and 20 employees, so actually people who are on payroll for us. Right. And then we have a, um, a a contract relationship with our program leaders, of which we have in the region of 20 or 20, yeah, 20, 25. So okay. it, we have that number of people who work for us, but different kind of financial arrangements. Right. So that's your global faculty of facilitators. So what do you look for in hiring people to be part of this network? Well, it's it's different whether you're hiring into the company or whether you're hiring a facilitator. Um, you know, we've learned, <laughs> well, first of all, hiring people really hard. <laughs> it's yeah. really hard to, to get that right. And um, we have some just truly fantastic people at Boxer Crowns at the moment. It's really a very strong team. And um, I've made some bad hires in the past where I haven't hired for the right reasons. So we are a company where if you have ambition and a willingness to take on responsibility, and I'm going to say a degree of sovereignty, a kind of sense of agency and a sense of responsibility, you can really thrive. Mm. You know, I, a year ago or thereabouts, I stepped away from being the CEO at Box of Crayons. And the woman, Shannon, who now is the CEO, I hired less than five years ago from behind the bar at my local pizza place. And she's so, so talented and she has this, if you like, founder mindset that she's you know, rapidly become the CEO of the company, which is amazing. <laughs> so thinking of 2002, I, I take it you were just on your own when you began Box of Crayons. Yeah, it wasn't even called Box of Crayons. Right. I mean, that that um, I, I'd been fired from my my job because I'd been bought in. So the the quick background is, I had been living in Boston, working for a consultancy in the world of kind of organizational development and organizational change. I'd 
decided with my wife to move up to Canada, Toronto, and I had a job as a consultant lined up. But our flight out of Boston was on 9-11. So by the time we finally got to Toronto, everything had changed. You know, the, my job had vanished. Yeah. Um, I got a, a temporary contract job trying to help what was known as kind of living the brand program. So a company going through a branding change and going, how do we shift our culture to reflect the external brand promise so that they support each other? And I, I pretty much spent six months flailing around, having no impact whatsoever. Because, you know, I showed up with <laughs> no real budget, no real influence, no real control. And um, funnily enough, that didn't work that well. So I finally, after six months or so, of which I'm grateful, they they f let me go, fired me. And <laughs> I was like, okay, now's the time to start my own company. So I incorporated and actually, for the first year, I had a three days a week uh, contract job working for a market research firm, helping them develop IP, intellectual property. And what that did is it brought in a steady stream of income, which allowed me to spend two or three days a week trying to figure out what I was doing. And honestly, mm. for the first, I'm going to say at least the first three to five years of of what became Box of Crayons, my business model was, if you have a pulse, <laughs> I'm interested, and a wallet, I'm interested in a conversation. <laughs> because it was a classic, small, entrepreneurial, I'm, I'm one dude, I, I know, I know a, a little bit about a lot, about innovation, about market research, about IP, about models, about internal communications, about change management. And it was a hybrid of that sort of stuff as I built a network in Toronto, a city I didn't know. From scratch. And also, I, I, yeah, I built a reputation and I try to figure out, if you use Jim Collins's metaphor about firing bullets and then firing a cannonball, I was, in retrospect, firing bullets to figure out what was my sweet spot which combined a point of difference, a degree of interest, and an ability to have the market pay for something. And that turned into this idea of a focus on coaching for normal people, for normal managers and leaders, and helping that make it an everyday leadership skill. Right. And then fast forward a couple of years, you then grew the brand and you began to hire people. So what was that like, that, that transition from being someone who is the brand effectively with yeah. some customers to all of a sudden growing something, hiring people, into different functions, growing a business with a structure, uh, all the uh, functions, and then of course having people to replace you and to become a, a faculty of facilitators. What was that like? Well, there's a there's about eight hours conversation and all of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So it went through a whole series of phases. I mean, I made a decision early on that I didn't want the brand to be about me. Because I could see the the limit of scale as soon as you do that. As soon as you become it's you know, Michael Bungay Senior. First of all, nobody can pronounce my name, so that's already off to a bad start. But I'm like, you know, at a certain point I become full <laughs> and I can't do much more. So I made a very early decision to not have my face and my picture on the front of the website and to to talk about growing box of crayons as a brand rather than growing me as a as a brand. But nonetheless, you know, the first phases the company went through, it was entirely Michael-centric. I built up um, contractors around me because we didn't hire employees for the first, 
15 years of the company or even longer of the company's existence. And there were you know, people who built websites, people who did marketing, people who uh, did the training, the, the program leaders. And I was kind of the hub doing all the sales, doing the marketing such as it was, teaching all the facilitators. And, um, it, you know, I was honestly stoked about all the success I had. I remember um, in the first year or the first two years kind of getting to maybe $150,000 or $200,000 in revenue for the year and just going, this is amazing. <laughs> it's a lot of money. And somehow I've done this all by myself because I don't really see myself as a a an entrepreneur and that kind of some people are born to hunt money and make money. That's not a motivator for me. Hmm. I am, though, largely unemployable, which kind of de facto makes you into an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. But what happens is uh, as your organization grows, it just it, it grows well, it figures something out, it grows and then it hits a plateau because at certain points your business just stops working the way your systems are designed for it to work. Um, so, you know, you get to 200000 or $250,000 in revenue and you just can't scale beyond that without kind of reinventing something. And then you get to five hundred, and then to about a million and then maybe to two, maybe two and a half million, something like that, then to five and then to ten. Mm-hmm. All of these plateaus are moments where you go, can I break through the limitations of this plateau? Am I courageous enough? to blow up a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> it's the it's what Christensen would call the innovator's dilemma, which is mm. you get invested into legacy ways of working and legacy systems which are hard to transcend. So we've just gone through a bunch of those phases. And, you know, it's hard because not only are you breaking and trying to rebuild systems, but people who have been great up to a certain point stop being great because the, the, the role just is different now and we you need something else thinking in a different way working in a different way and you end up having to let a bunch of people go and that's terrible because they've been loyal participants in the journey so far and you start making choices about what matters more to me you know impacting the world growing the business evolving the business is potential and my own potential mm. or being nice <laughs> and you have those tensions. And can you point to a particular point or a, an event or a series of events, maybe one of those years after the 13 year mark where you feel this is the moment I've arrived. I now can say this is something of me. It could literally survive without me but it's something that now I feel is on its way to the stratosphere. It's something which internationally has, has, has reputation. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, there's, I mean, we're not anywhere close to being on the way to any stratosphere, but we, but you know, a year ago I formally stepped away as the CEO of Box of Crayons. Um, we, I had identified Shannon as the future CEO a year before that. And we spent a year with a coach working on that transition because founder transitions are a nightmare. I mean, they're terrible and they fail almost all the time mm. because founders are possessive, meddling, quicksilvery, <laughs> fingers and too many pies type people. And I'm sure. one of them. And it's quite hard to spend 20 years building something that is some version, some external representation of who you are and what you care about in the world and then hand it over to somebody 
who will just, you know, who's just not going to do it the same way you do it. That makes sense. So, yeah, so the, the transition that we've been going through for the last two years has been part of me now being able to look at Box of Crayons and say it can survive without me. And do you feel that that transition has, has run its course? Do you still feel involved, even emotionally? I know you're involved, obviously, as a someone with a stake in the business, but do you feel yeah. you've stepped away completely to the level that Shannon expects of you and that perhaps other people might expect you to have succeeded in? Hmm. So we we have um, negotiated that over the year. When we started, I was checking in, was it, was it, I think daily. I think it was a daily check-in because I wanted her to know that I had her back. I wanted her to feel supported. Turns out that was a bit smothering, <laughs> as you can guess. <laughs> so we then went to a once a week check-in. And about three or four months ago, we actually moved more formally to a once a month check-in. So once a month, she and I have lunch together you know, these days over Zoom, but before then, and we catch up in a restaurant. And then on a quarterly basis, she reports to the board. Now, the board is my wife and I who co-own the company. So she has a formal a formal reporting rhythm. Uh, she writes a monthly report and then a, a, a formal quarterly report for us. And, you know, part of what's allowed that to succeed is two things. Mm -hmm. And it stems from the insight I heard from somebody who said, the thing that the CEO or the founder is best at becomes the thing that the company is worst at. Really? Because, what does that mean? <laughs> well, because if you're the, if you're like, look, I'm the founder and I'm, I, and quite frankly, I'm delighted to give up a whole bunch of stuff because mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of like sales. Mm -hmm. Like I, I managed to make sales at Box of Crayons in spite of myself, because I love the I love the content and I believed in the content and I had a degree of savviness, but I'm no salesperson. Mm. And um, so so it was easy for me to to step aside and go, hey, formal salesperson that we've hired, come in and and run this, and I'm not, and I don't feel any need to meddle with that because what do I know? But but marketing, for instance, I just fancy myself as having some good marketing instincts. Which means that what that translates as is I think I could probably do better. <laughs> so I think I could meddle around this. And I have some good instincts on program design and I have some good instincts on marketing and I have some good instincts on being a CEO. What that means is you have to hire top quality people to fill those spaces because I need to be able to look at them and go, yeah, yeah, okay. I concede. You're actually a professional. <laughs> I am I'm a good amateur and all of that, but you guys are the professionals, so I will now back away. And fundamentally, it's having Shannon as the CEO who is an extraordinarily smart and competent and big-hearted person who absolutely takes the responsibility of running this company as if she owned it. Um allows me to go, you know, honestly, there's nothing I can do as CEO that comes close to the, what she's doing as CEO. So that allows me to walk away from that. But I'm lucky that I've got two things on my side. One is an incredibly brilliant woman running this company. And secondly, a degree of emotional intelligence that I've worked on. I mean, I've, this is not a casual thing. This has been work mm -hmm. where I go, I am playing the bigger picture of of trusting her with this company and walking away and not meddling. And 
most founders that, that I know of who've had trouble with the succession haven't been able to give that up. Yeah, and I can understand why, because inevitably mm. it's something that uh, you've sweated, blood and tears. It's been totally. sometimes perhaps some people I've spoken to, they've seen it come close to the wall and it's bounced back again. And it's part of you. It's 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 this thing that it's almost like a child, I'd imagine, that you you, you can't quite let go and you can't quite trust someone else doing as good a job or looking after it with the same kind of founder care that right. you would have. But it has to happen. And and the slipperiness of that, Mark, is the expectation that CEO, you need to make this a success. And actually the what all I can ask of Shannon is she does her very best to run the company in the best way she can. And what that means is she has permission to fail at the level of box of crowns needing to be shut down. And, you know, that doesn't mean be, be trivial or be foolish <laughs> or anything like that. And she's, she wouldn't. Um, but it means that every company has its arc, every company has its lifespan. Mm. And if she has done all she can and, you know, you have a global pandemic and the world of learning and development shuts down and 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 our biggest two, our three biggest clients go bankrupt. You know, there's all sorts of external factors that mm. just may mean that the, this company doesn't survive. Mm. And that that's okay. I mean, it's, it wouldn't be my first choice, <laughs> but it's okay because that's in part what it means to trust somebody with your company, which is I trust you to do the best and part of the consequences are that this company may fail. Yeah, and so in tandem then, you have started since July last year, if my facts are yep. correct, you've begun MBS Works. That's right. So let's let's go over that. What is the inspiration for MBS Works and what is the idea behind it? Well, there, it's a great question, and there are a couple of answers to it. The mm. first is, it is a sandbox in which I can play so that I don't go back and meddle at Box of Crayons. So it's, a, it's, <laughs> right. it's really? literally a, a very deliberate self-management tool to okay. say, look, it's a distraction, Michael, because if you don't have this, how will you resist? Like I'm a weak, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a weak man. I was like, oh, just let me just be helpful and come in and offer Shannon some suggestions. Of course. And um, so it's in part just a place where I'm like, Michael, go go play in your sandbox. Hmm. And in terms of what it is, I'm I'm still trying to figure that out, um, or at least I'm still attempting to be patient enough to see what emerges from that. Uh, I, it's, I, at this stage, it will be a B to C play, meaning me serving individuals. Um, it's probably a, degree, a version of some sort of online learning experience. So it might be a community, it might be a membership site, it might be something like that. But I haven't quite got the, the positioning of it down yet because it's hard, because there's, because I don't want to sound like a life coach. I want to sound different to that. Um, and I'm still trying to find the language and the exact positioning around it, but it's really my invitation to say to people, hey, look, I can help you step up your game, be more confident, mm -hmm. be more ambitious, be more courageous, um, because if you do that, you serve the world and you serve yourself, and then we all win. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's a, it's a platform to try things out. Secondly, it's a way to 
not do the opposite of Box of Crayons, where it's a corporate brand, but this time your name is firmly attached to this. I mean, this is your, your name's yeah. on this, effectively. But what I find courageous about this is the fact that a lot of people often think, well, only when I've got the idea, the concept clear while I launch this, but you're kind of doing this in an agile way, which is to just launch it, have those uh, readings from your book, have conversations and see what kind of comes from this. It's quite a gutsy thing to do. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, you can frame it as gutsy or mm. just sensible. Mm. Okay. <laughs> because, like, I, could, I could build a whole bunch of stuff and launch it to deafening silence. Um, and... I could build a, I mean, I'm now old enough, you know, I'm in my early fifties mm -hmm. that I, I could just, I could fill my time easily enough. You know, I know it's like, it's like being back 20 years ago when I was starting Box of Crowns. I'm like, I can do a whole bunch of things and I can do them well enough that I could probably find ways of getting paid for it. Mm. But part of this is for my own fulfillment. And part of what that requires is me to to separate myself long enough from the identity I've carried as the guy behind Box of Crayons to actually figure some stuff out. You know, one of the questions I started this year with was, who are my new teachers? Because I want to find different voices and different perspectives and different fields where I can stretch and grow rather than just continuing to beat the same rhythm on the same drums. Mm -hmm. So speaking of finding teachers, you were part of the original cohort of 25 uh, from, or rather with Marshall Goldsmith. So was Marshall a teacher to you in that sense? He has taught me a bunch of stuff, but mm. perhaps not what you might expect. I mean, okay. of course, he's known as being a coach. And mm -hmm. um, his, his idea behind this Marshall Goldsmith, what's now called the Marshall Goldsmith 100, mm -hmm. which has more than 100 people in it because Marshall's not good at <laughs> counting or something. Um, <laughs> but originally it was the Marshall Goldsmith. I think it was originally the Marshall Goldsmith 15 and then it was 25 and then it was 50 and then it was 100. And, and you know, it's a gathering of people who have something to, who Marshall sees has something to teach the world. And his idea is that it's a legacy project for him, which is like, I'm going to tell you, teach you all I know. and your job will be to do the same when your time comes, when you're ready to pass it on, which is like, how do you spread the essence of your teaching? And I'm like, okay, I like that. I honestly wasn't that excited about joining it when I, I got, I kind of got asked to be part of it. I'm like, ah, I don't know, you know, I'm a coach. He's a coach. We're kind of we're not competitors exactly, but we're not, not competitors. But it all it all happened. The universe turned in such a way that I ended up as part of it. And I was like, I don't know. And I tell you what Marshall's taught me, less about coaching specifically, because you know, we both know a bit about that. Um, he has shown me the power of being a host. Mm -hmm. Like actually it turns out one of the Marshall's great gifts is gathering people gathering people and making invitations for them to participate and stuff. And that's been really helpful for me. That's been a key learning. It's like, how do I gather really cool people around me? And I've got a, an inkling to do that, but I don't have it at Marshall Goldsmith's level. So that's a, a call for me to be a better version of myself. Right. And that, that might be a vehicle for that MBS works drawing that kind yeah. of, yeah. Okay. So thinking of the books, because that's how I came across your brand originally, 
was uh, the coaching habit. Um, and I learned about this from a podcast I listened to, Pat Flynn's podcast, the Smart Passive Income podcast, mm. and he raved yeah. about the book. One of his, I think, he did. That was he so nice. Absolutely of him. raved about the book, and um, I, I never really thought of, of Pat being very emotional or emotive as a, as a kind of a, a podcast host. But he was really, really gung ho about this book. So, the question I have is: How have your books helped to not just articulate your vision, but to win business, actual revenue? To take the last question first, mm. there's a absolute direct correlation between the success of that book and the success at Box of Crowns in particular. So I think our revenue has probably doubled and doubled again in the four years since that book has come out, four and a half years since the book has come out. And there's just a number of clients we can look at you know, one of our clients is Microsoft and they're a significant client for us. Mm. And we know exactly who, how we got that business. Andrea picked the book up it, or it came to her as a kind of insistent, you should buy this book on Amazon. And she called me up and went, what do you do? And that turned into running a thing for them, which turned into another thing, which turned into us launching a big online course for them. And it's easy to point to, you know, a, a, a hefty amount of revenue from the specifically from that book. And like USAA, the um, the financial services company that serves ex-military US folks. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you know, the guy was like, I was looking up books on Amazon, and so what do you do? <laughs> I'm like, well, we do this, and that like turned into a program where we put almost everybody in USAA through our programs. So it's been a huge, a huge success in in a way that is a bit of a reality distortion because quite frankly, most books don't have that degree of success. I mean, this book has sold seven or 800,000 copies now. And that's huge. You know, it, it is huge and it's self-published as well. So it's kind of got a, a an extra <laughs> dash of amazingness because of that. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, the, the, the idea of, of putting a book together and and the editing process, because if it's self-edited, that's a, quite an onerous process. Or I'm sure you've edited people, but you've, you've got um, the self-publishing, as I understand it, it is quite a difficult thing to do because you've got to conceive it, you've got to develop it. There's copy editing, developmental editing, mm. uh, you know, choosing the, the the way to to launch it in a way it doesn't just sit there on Amazon, yep. but actually gains traction. What was that like? Taking your courage, putting a book together, deciding what it looks like, what's in it, cutting out words, mm-hmm. reaching a tip, uh, a certain number of words, and saying it's now good enough to go. What's that like? I mean, to 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 grease your point, it is a, it is basically a miserable experience writing a book. I'm glad you said that. Trying, <laughs> I'm glad you said you're that. Trying, I mean, <laughs> you're trying to put ideas into words. You're trying to make them original. Mm. You're trying. You, you're it, it, what's in your head and what you write are not the same thing for at least three drafts. So it's like it's kind of a you know the famous crappy first draft experience. We every writer's had it. Yeah. Um, one of the commitments I made when I decided to self-publish it, because I'd spent three years trying to pitch it to an actual publishing company who'd published another book of mine, but they, they weren't interested. So I was like, okay, no matter. I'm going to self-publish it. And the commitment was to do a job as a professional. So this would be a professionally self-published book. Because actually, it's pretty easy to self-publish mm. a book. 
if you can upload a PDF to Amazon, you can self-publish a book. And that's why there's so many terrible, terrible self-published books out there. I mean, Precisely, they're just, yeah. they're just, they just suck. <laughs> and so I hired a designer, I hired an editor, I hired a proofreader, I invested um, in what it would take for this book to be indistinguishable from a air quote regularly published book and that's the experience of when you pick the book up i mean for there, there are some of the books in some of the markets around the world where it's print on demand where it has a slightly more self-published feel to it mm -hmm. but for if you're in any of the main markets where it's being printed at a proper printing uh, factory it just you would not know it was self-published. And that's because I'm, I I worked with a company based in Vancouver called Page Two Publishing. Mm -hmm. And they were effectively a white label publisher for me. Even though I, I control the rights and I control the process and I have the final say off, they were my professional Sherpas and guides. And you have a book now called The Advice Trap. Mm -hmm. So you're obviously, you're well, you've four or five books in total, right? That's right, yeah. Do great work. Um, which I've come across, or do great, more great yeah, work? Do, do more great work, right? Um, which came out about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the Coaching Habit and the Advice Trap, which are kind of like you know, companion books, sister books to each other. My first book was called Get Unstuck and Get Going on the Stuff That Matters. It's basically out of print now. It's a, it's a complicated, another self-published book, which involved... Um, the pages being cut into strips. So it's like one of those kids' books where you can combine <laughs> heads really? and bodies and legs. <laughs> but they combine coaching questions. So you'd get uh, this kind of provocative combination of questions that would make you think differently about books. And then in uh, 2011, I, I worked with Seth Godin and we put out a book called uh, End Malaria which raised money for Malaria No More. And it was a collection of articles, people writing about the power of great work. Mm. All the money raised, not just the profit, but all the revenue went to Malaria No More. And we raised, I think, about $400,000 for Malaria No More. And the book hit number two on Amazon. Wow. Yeah, it was very cool. It's a great project. So what's the advice trap about? I mean, I've, I've, a, I've, a, I've read the, uh, the synopsis, but yeah. coming from the author's mouth, what is sure. the book about and who, who needs it? Well, we all need it. So, but, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so the coaching habit as a place to start says, look, mm. let me make coaching unweird. Here's, mm. here's what a habit is. Here's how you build a habit. That's the first chapter. And then this, the next seven chapters are here are seven great questions. And if you have those seven questions and you start making them habitual, you will, you will, you'll lift your game as a, not just as a leader, but as a human being. <laughs> Now, there are some people who looked at those seven questions, took them, started to use them, and basically rocking it, doing a great job. And, they, they, you know, I get emails regularly. This changed the way that I lead, this changed the way I manage, this changed my relationship with my kids and my spouse and all sorts of great stuff. There are some people, though, who read the book and went, even though it's a good book, I have found it hard to change my behavior. How mm. do I, and this is how I define coaching, how do you stay curious a little bit longer how do you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And it's a deeper dive into what it takes for you to actually hold and stay curious. And the metaphor that's at the heart of the book is you have to learn how to tame your advice monster. And we all know our advice monster. You know, somebody starts talking and your advice monster looms up in your head right away going, <laughs> oh, 
this, you're about to add some value to this conversation with this, you know, bomb mark, this insight, this opinion, this advice, yeah. this suggestion. And while there is absolutely lots of places where advice is exactly the right thing to be offering up, the advice monster is when your advice is your default response to what's going on. And that's what we're looking to shift. So people obviously are tempted to help. Um, you naturally will resort to what I've called or someone's called, and I've learned that phrase, autobiographical listening, where you begin to, your brain begins to think, well, how can I relate to this person by preaching a story just like this one? You're not listening. And so the person doesn't really get what they want from you, which is actually perhaps some kind of empathy and insight. Instead, you're rehashing and regurgitating what you seem seem to think this is about, what they think, what you think they should do to, to get themselves out of this. Yeah, I mean, it comes from a place, an utterly understandable place. Mm. You're trying to be helpful. Yeah. You're trying to, to look smart. You're trying to add value. You're trying to help them. You're trying to save them. You're trying to control the situation. You're doing all sorts of stuff that are very deep, fundamental human drivers. And there's a price you pay for that, which is you know, solving the wrong problem. You're offering up not very great advice. You're disempowering the other person. There's a lot that happens in that moment where you go, I've heard enough. I'm just going to jump in and try and fix this for you. Yeah, it's tempting. We all do it. I put my hand up here. <laughs> I've done it perhaps yeah, at least three times I mean, today. I put my hand up as well. It's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all human. So finally, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, uh, Box of Crayons, MBS Works, but I'll leave you give those details if you'd like. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but I mean, if you're interested in the corporate training, boxofcrayons.com, um, and you'll, I mean, I know most of you listening are, trainers and running your own company. So you're not interested in hiring Box of Crayons, but you might be interested in the structure of it and how we position ourselves in the world. So boxofcrayons.com. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at my sandbox, how I'm trying to stop myself meddling <laughs> with Box of Crayons, <laughs> mbs.works is the place for there. And you know, there's a ton of free stuff that you can get there, including, and I love this, particularly something called the Year of Living Brilliantly, which is a 52-week 52 teachers video-based course where I just picked 52 of my people who I really admire who have something great to teach and said, shoot a video, two to six minutes, teach me something awesome. And and they have. And if you want to track me on Instagram, um, which is, um, I mean, LinkedIn, you can follow me at Michael Bungay-Stenia and Instagram, it's MBS underscore works. And of course, you're also, you've been on a few times in the last couple of weeks reading two pages from your book, which is a fantastic yeah. idea. I really enjoyed oh, that. Thanks. Okay, Michael, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks so much for your time this evening. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Michael, for being our guest today, for speaking to us live from Ontario. And to you, thank you, my listeners, for tuning in again this week to the Training Business Podcast. And if it's of interest to you, I'm sure it is, you'll catch Michael live some nights uh, every week reading two pages from one of his books. In this case, it's his latest book, The Advice Monster. I find that very interesting, e even as an idea. If you're an author out there, you've got a book behind your training business, your coaching brand, reading two pages from your book live on some platform like LinkedIn or Facebook could actually bring you business. So I'm going to really keep an eye on that. I'm intrigued. Will this actually lead to leads 
for people like you out there, people who've got books, people who are authors and have a coaching or training business. So thank you again for your time, for tuning in to this week's episode of the Training Business Podcast. You have, of course, some great ideas for episodes and content, so please keep those coming. You can mail me directly to or by writing to mark at trainingbusiness.com. I read my emails personally and will reply to them personally, so I welcome all suggestions that you may have for guests or for topics for episodes of the podcast. There is a fresh episode next Thursday, which is by my calculation, looking at my calendar here, next Thursday is Thursday the 25th of June. Hard to believe it's the 25th of June next week, but there you go. The summer's racing by. So until then, until I have the pleasure of your company next week for next week's episode, please look after yourself and your loved ones. Keep safe, keep on training, and keep in touch. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.